0: I am J.A. Lovelock. Welcome to my podcast. Over the past few months, I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing three people who had had a relationship with the criminal justice system in one way or another. In this episode of Behind the Yellow Tape, I have chosen some extracts from these interviews, which will be obvious for the month of October. My guests were Detective Sergeant Janet Hills, MBE of the Metropolitan Police Force, who became the first female chairperson of the Metropolitan Black Police Association, and she was also president of the National Black Police Association. And then I met Malachi Smith, a former police officer in Jamaica and Florida, who found a passion in dub poetry aside from his passion as a police officer. We will hear more of his dub poetry in a while. And then there was Ashley Nugent, who whilst not working for the police in any way or form, yet became quite acquainted with the criminal justice system, starting from his teenage years. His story coming up next. But first, let's hear about Detective Sergeant Janet Hills and her journey to becoming a police officer and how she rose in the ranks. So tell us about yourself. Where did you start? So
1: I I was brought up in Croydon, a little place just outside the town, outside of London, local Croydon. Um, so I was born and bred there. My parents are Windrush generation. Even though my mum declares that she didn't come over on no boat, she came over on the British Overseas Airways uh, plane. So, um, but obviously during that time, brought up with a single parent. My mum was a single parent who brought us up, which was fantastic. There were five of us living um, at home. I've got an older brother and an older sister and then a younger brother and a younger sister. And I'm the middle child. And then I've got a brother in Jamaica who's never been to the UK. So... Yeah, just most of my life, in fact, all of my life has been spent in Croydon, actually. Um, I, I myself am married. I have a daughter and I'm a grandmother. I call myself a Janmar oh, um, right. of a two-year-old boy called Noah. So, yeah, my daughter is a district nurse. She's oh, 37 and uh, she's a district nurse. So um, we're both in that profession of public service.
0: Now I want to ask you now because I'm thinking about your career path. i will talk about that in a minute. But were you a goody two shoes when you were a girl? <laughs> it depends on. <laughs> it depends on who you ask.
1: Actually, oh, I, see. I would okay. say <laughs> I would definitely say yes, I was. Yes. But I'm sure there are people that would tell you a story or two. Um, and actually, my middle name is Trouble. So um, oh, right? <laughs> You can decide for yourself. But I I thought I was a pretty good teacher. And to be fair, I think I was quite naive growing up. I wasn't exposed to a great deal growing up. So, um, yeah, I've been learning. My whole life's journey is one of learning all the time.
0: Which brings me on to you joining the police service. Why did you join? Was it something that happened?
1: Yeah, someone hit me over the head. No, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> um,
0: <laughs>
1: no, no. On a on the on the real note. Um, actually, there was a number of different reasons. Uh, firstly, my brother, my older brother, was in the police service. That was a big influence for me. Him being in. Uh, the other thing was I was on the buses at the time, so I had been a bus conductor, bus driver, and I was a revenue inspector. And a lot of the revenue um work was around getting onto buses and checking tickets. And we used to do joint operations with the police at that time. So again it was it was getting to know how the police functioned because you'd go into a police station, you'd write your statement and do all that kind of stuff. So there was a, a number of influences there. Um, a group of those revenue inspectors left um from my team to join the police and they said look why don't you join and I was like oh I don't know about it but um yeah I made I made the sort of decision to go based on having you know my brother that was in the force and then people that I knew or worked with who were leaving to join so yeah it was a combination
0: Now, you're a Black lady, and I remember a time, there was a time when if a Black person joined the police, they were ostracised by their family, and maybe even the community. Was that your experience or not? No. um, Don't
1: get me wrong. I think people were a bit sort of sceptical about joining. But I think, based on my personality, people were saying, like, well, we thought you would have joined ages ago. Um, So I think the people around me in particular and and having a brother that was in the force, it it, it wasn't that bad. I didn't get I didn't get that much heat is what I'll say. Um, I joined in 1991 and I was posted to Brixton police station. So, you know, I'm a Croydon girl. And back then, the two places were quite different in terms of demographic. And, you know, when I went to Brixton, it was a little bit of an eye opener for me in terms of the amount of black people I saw, because i would never seen so many black people I know. I, in, I mean, in one place. I know. The first
0: time I went to Brixton, I, I had that same experience. I thought, oh my goodness, where am I? <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It was yeah. like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, for me, it, it was, um, uh, you know, a bit of an eye opener. So when I, when I, my first day when so we we did two weeks street duties which was just familiarizing ourselves with the area with the sort of things that we'd be doing on a day-to-day basis so out of training school we we stayed with our with the the students that we were in training school with and we did a two-week um street duties program where um you know we, we were just indoors and then they let us outside to do our first patrol and I always remember that first patrol walking down and the amount of people that just said hello to me I'm there in my uniform walking down Brixton High Road and the amount of black people that just said hello to me and were really really nice um, my my white colleague said to me she said do you know all these people and I was like no but um, <laughs> That's how welcome I was made yes. to feel. Yeah. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. it was really yeah. good. Yeah,
0: that's great. Because then I was going to ask you, can you recall your first assignment? What was the first your first assignment?
1: So I think my first assignment was um theft of pedal bike. Uh I I it was on Brixton Hill, and someone had reported someone else taking their pedal bike and they'd seen it sort of like being wheeled along uh, so you know I turned up uh to deal with that and yeah it was very confusing because I was like both parties seemed plausible you know I was like well has he stolen it <laughs> Do you know what I mean, or is he sort of like mistaken the bike to be you know his bike so in the end I seized the bike <laughs> um I didn't make any arrests but I did seize the bike and basically said that they needed to come to the police station to, with a you know proof that it was their bike to get it returned, and I didn't arrest, but I was told that I should have done. But hey, you know there'll be another time. I I thought
0: your first time really wasn't it? It was your
1: first time. It was. He was like, I didn't. I didn't really know.
0: <laughs> should I arrest him? Should I not?
1: I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I was like, Ooh, do I? Don't
0: I? Yes. Yeah. What's what's one of the worst things about being um, a police officer? Yeah. You know, I think it's going to vary
1: for different people, but for me, I, I guess you know, it's 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 the upset that actually comes with the job. You know, some of the emotional things that you have to deal with in life. You know, knowing that a young person's life has been taken is always, you know, quite heart wrenching. Actually, even though you know it's not my child, you still feel the pain for the parents and the family. So in that regard, you know, those are some of the worst um, incidents that I've de- dealt with in, in when it comes to young people. You know, it's really quite an emotional area. Um, and, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be through violence. It could be sort of like just a, a, a baby, basically, that's died from cop death that you're having to go and report on, which, again, it's quite emotional, you know, so... I think that that for me is one of the toughest parts of the job.
0: Now, you have risen to the position of detective sergeant. What challenges, if any, did you face along the way?
1: So, I I'm So just in terms of the ranking, I'm on the first run. So you you start as a PC and then you take promotion to become a sergeant. And then after that, you've got inspector and then the ranks go up. So I'm only on the first run. And to be fair, I left it really late to make that decision. So I had been in policing for about 15 years before I actually decided that I was going to become a sergeant, which if I could go back and do it again, I would absolutely have started earlier and probably gone further, but that's in hindsight. As it was, it was, it was challenging to get here. And I think part of that challenge to a degree is, is being in that sort of male space. It's, it's, it's a still quite a male dominated job. And if you think when I joined back in 1991, um, it was very much like that. Women were still not, you know, requiring the respect that they needed to to do that job. So in that regard, it was quite challenging. There were things it was felt that we couldn't do. So, you know, if there was a public order incident, it would be the men first. Um, But yeah, if it was a child that needed taken into, say, police protection, you'd send the women, when actually the men were more likely to have had the children and would be better dealing with them. So, you know, in terms of that, you know, there were gender challenges coming through. But what there was also was the fact that I was a black female um, coming through, uh, which, again, was really it was difficult in so much that it was harder to prove so as a woman you can sort of prove the sort of issues that you're going through in terms of the way you're being treated when you're black not so not unless it's really sort of in your face you know someone's name calling or you know something's really quite deliberate so in terms of that uh I had being black and being a female, which gave me double challenges um, with regards to being a police officer.
0: What kept you going? Uh,
1: That's a really good question. I think part of it was, I guess, my own conviction when I started policing that I was going to remain authentic to who I am and not let this sort of organisation take over because it's so easy when you want to fit in that you then sort of like assimilate into the culture. So I guess part of like who I am today is the fact that when I went in, I was determined to remain authentic. Uh, And, you know, I feel to a degree, I think there's been some change, don't get me wrong, but I think in terms of me thinking back to, you know, achieving, remaining true to myself, you know, keeping good friends, keeping, you know, family, having a lot of really sort of core basic issues, you know, basics around who I am, um, have kept me sort of like going
0: strong. And how do you feel, um, how you make a difference? How do you, how do you think you make a difference?
1: It's about my lived experience and it's about how I can influence some of the sort of policy and some of the decisions that are are made in terms of how things are perceived. In terms of my own lived experience uh, around being a police officer and then when I'm not a police officer, as in, you know, I'm just Janet Hills on the road, that actually there's another different experience for me. So when I'm a police officer, it's observed that I'm a police officer and you get treated a certain way. Then when you're not a police, officer, potentially because people don't know that you're a cop. Yeah, because you're still black. Um, you get treated a different way. So it's about bringing all of that together and, and trying to influence some of the policy. As I said, in terms of, you know, knowing London, I think that's key you know we it's a really big force you've got 40,000 plus um people working for the metropolitan police service and if you've got people coming from all over the country you know northern ireland scotland um to police it then they should know you know the communities which they're there to police and not be left to have their own sort of stereotypes i guess of you know, what they've seen in media, what they've read in the newspaper, that kind of thing. So I think there is a job of work to be done for policing. And this is where I guess I would try to influence is like, you know, what are we doing to educate those officers that potentially have not engaged with, you know, diverse communities before? You know, and this is their first time coming to London and they're in a role that is about community engagement. You know, so, you know, there are some good things now. I know that um, this has been introduced in terms of new officers starting this year who will be getting um, it's sort of like London. It's a, a sort of like input around communities of London and, you know, the sort of history so that they've got that to go with. I think there should be something further when they get to their, their boroughs that they're able to, again, research specifically bespokely their boroughs in terms of any of the issues that have been there so that they have a better understanding of what's going on. And I guess, for me, it's about bringing in, you know, in terms of my influence, it's about bringing in a different view which potentially others wouldn't have.
0: And here's an extract from Ashley Nugent's interview.
2: And that's why I eventually took that trip to Jamaica. Tell us mm. more about that. Well, OK, I I had been to Jamaica the previous year when I was 15, turning 16. So now at 16, just about to turn 17, I went back to Jamaica. It was all part of this, you know, I had this identity foisted upon me from as far back as I can remember comments about how we're Black, or I'm not really black. You're not like those other black people because you're not really dark black, you know. Oh, I know your dad is, but, I know, but your dad's really nice, isn't he? He makes good food. He's not like them <laughs> other ones, you know. And you're kind of half cast or you're colored, are you? And I didn't know what these terms meant because nobody explained any of this. I remember standing on top of the bin in the bathroom and looking in the mirror in the bathroom and trying to find them stripes of colour on my face the red, purple, yellow, orange. I'm haven't got colours on my face so why did he keep saying I'm coloured because even though my dad was six foot two and he used to dress real real sharp as I say he was real, real professional now he was real successful he had a huge afro at the time and a big afro beard and yet none of that seemed any reason for anyone to point out that he looked any different to my friends that's that you know you don't as a child you don't think that oh oh i oh i see the melon in the pigment oh, that's what you mean oh the curly hair oh that's a that's a difference is it you know cool. um so yeah i i went to jamaica to try and find out i decided i will take on this black lad identity but i don't really know what that means so I was listening to rap music. I was listening to Bob Marley. I had posters all over my bedroom of N.W.A. and you know what? I, I was, I was trying to find a way. I thought there must be a way of being, a way of feeling, a way of behaving, different. If everybody claims that I'm different, but I didn't know what that difference was supposed to be. So, do you, do you want me to tell you how? Oh that, yes, please. That okay. Oh yes, please. So, so, I, I, I was a young. I was sixteen years old. I, I, by now, I'd started to believe I was a bit tougher. I wasn't a violent person in school. I, I, people would hit me and say racist things, and it hit me at all. I wouldn't even fight back. I just didn't see the point in violence. I didn't like it. didn't see the point in it. didn't care who was meant to be dead. So it wasn't a thing to me. But eventually, you get sick of being pushed around. And you start to think, oh... I- I should fight back. And you have all the hormones raging and the angst of being a young person and the resentment of school and the police and the state institutions. So I was, I was getting angry by now. And I thought I was a bit of a bad boy.
0: Whereabouts in Jamaica were you?
2: Montego Bay. And a guy stepped out from behind a wall and started talking to me. Hey, English, where are you from? Bah, 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 bah. And then he snapped the chain off my neck. Uh, they had a gold chain, a rope chain. Um... So I fought with him. He pulled out a knife. He stabbed me a few times. The police came. We were very aggressive with the police. I eventually collapsed. They had to get me in the back of the car. I remember them saying they didn't want me bleeding all over the back of the car. <laughs> but they got me in the car anyway. So, and from that point on, I guess they didn't really like us. I guess there's this perception of English, rich, light skin, think you rude boys coming over here, causing trouble, that kind of resentment. One of the guys tried to get me to bribe him, you know, but I didn't realise that. When I think back now, I can see what he was saying. He kept asking me, what what money have you got? Have you got more money? Where's the rest of your money? You obviously got more money. You're an English boy. Where's the rest of the money? I was like, that's the money in my pocket. And who was asking you those questions? A policeman. So I was sat there in this cell now with this guy who'd been taken off the streets for, uh, you know, uh, supposedly harassing tourists, and he was saying to me, Oh, well, it's okay, you go to court tomorrow and you maybe get a fine. Did they let you let you out? Carry on with your holiday. And he said, he said, ah, how old is your rude boy? I said, I'm um, 16. He said, You already tell them you're 16. I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He went, Oh, that means you go a family card. This is Monday, you know. I said, I said, oh, boy, what time's family court? Oh, Thursday. I said, Thursday? Thursday? <laughs> So anyway, he took me from there to kind of a Barnet Street correctional facility down in Montego Bay the next day. Um, kept me there for a the couple of days until family court on Thursday. Come family court on Thursday, what happened then was huh, the probation officer said to the magistrate, well, as this as this delinquent is, uh, is 16 years old and is a juvenile, we will have to write a juvenile report which will be sent by post to England whereupon it will be filled in (laughs) and posted back to Jamaica whereupon we will verify the report and until such a time as we receive that report, there was no fax machine at the court. Remember this is before the days of emails and there wasn't even a fax machine, this is 1993. Um, The juvenile shall be remanded in a place of safety. And we'll bring him back to cart. And they gave me a date which was like way, way after even the the day that I was due to fly home. So they took me to this place, cops Place of Safety, in Hanover, to an English boy from a little leafy village in northern England. Cops Place of Safety was about the most unsafe place I'd seen in me. It was indeed the least safe place I had ever been. (laughs) And there was a place in Cops Place of Safety called the Strong Room where they put boys who had been caught fighting or trying to escape that kind of thing. And it was underground, like underground in Jamaica. And there was no, the taps didn't work and the toilets didn't flush. And there was no other way of washing the way, no showers. You don't leave 24-7. Twice a day they bring us a, a bucket of mush, and, uh, and and some tepid tap water in bottles. Somebody gave me an empty milk carton to scoop this mush with and eat with my hands. <clears throat> it's a hellhole. Well, I got out of there after a couple of days.
0: So how was your life turned around after those experiences?
2: My life was turned around by, by writing. Um, what did you write? I'd always written little stories and stuff since I was very little. It was just like a hobby, something I liked doing. As I got older, I kind of didn't share that with anyone. As I got older, I kind of just kept it to myself. I was very passionate about writing, but I didn't read. And this is probably the case for a lot of people who end up rapping. Yeah, yes, rapping. Tell me more about your rapping. So... I went to college when I was 21 because I decided I had this... For one, I was sick of my lifestyle. I was sick of it. I was just bored with it. It wasn't really me. You know, I just knew something had to change. And also I had this burning desire to kind of admit that I like writing stuff and to maybe share it with people. So I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be an author. Um, But I had these poems and stuff. I knew as this thing was happening in Jamaica, I thought if I get out of here alive, this will be the basis of my first book. Um, I didn't know it was going to take 30 years to get there at the time, but anyway, uh, we'll come back to that. Um, so I went to college just to meet people who knew about creativity, writing, poetry, that kind of things. I didn't have friends that knew about that kind of stuff. And I met a guy called Mac. He's now sometimes known as the Mac of all trades. He's a rapper, beatboxer, producer, all-around genius musician. And he was starting a band, a rap band. And he said, "Well, you've got these poems. Why don't you, you know, come and join this band? You can use your po- your, your poems can be rap songs." Mm. And we got some songs together, and we started performing. I missed the first concert because I actually got I got hit over the back of the head again.
0: Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> anyway, oh dear. anyway, but, but I, I,
2: you know, I was calming down. And, you know, and moving out of that lifestyle. And rap allowed me to express that that anger and that resentment these are all still my friends now and one of them was in Oxford University doing some kind of I always call it microbiology, if he hears this he'll, he'll tell me again, it's not microbiology, Ash, but anyway I always forget what it is, but he was in Oxford anyway he's clever, and um, so I started reading books, i like what well, these guys know stuff, and, and I started to realise as I started studying I'm never going to be respected if I'm never going to be good as a writer I can rap But I want to write. And I'm never going to be any good if I don't read. So I start studying hard every day. And that has been the case for the past, what, 20-odd years now. Mm. Studying hard every day. And writing and reading and writing and studying and studying. I ended up in university. Left university with a first-class degree. Oh, very good. Very good. Listen, let's talk about um, Rise Up. Oh, let's. We spent a year then. We spent a year researching. And talking to therapists and uh, people with lived experience to uh, educators and artists, trying to fathom what this programme would be. But the idea was it would take people on a journey and it would somehow kind of reflect what I saw, how I perceived my journey to be. I'm a person who has a first class degree and teaching qualifications, that kind of stuff, from a person who was very violent, well very angry, at least, and quite aggressive, um, to a person who is very, very calm and really, like, kind of happy and, you know, has a kind of lovely life, you know? Um, is that you? <laughs> yeah, that's me, yeah, 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 yeah. So it was kind of what what steps did I take on that journey? The, the, the Rise Up course takes people on a 12-step journey and we teach, we use models, we teach people models that come from things like neuro-linguistic programming, uh, transactional analysis, and we don't do therapy with people. We bring in the therapist to teach the prisoners what you know about how the mind works, what emotions are, what the central nervous system is, how to get control of all of that, and therefore control your behaviour, communicate better, avoid conflict, get the most out of every situation. And we do all that, we engage people through the arts, rap, classical music, crafts, drama, poetry. That's what gets people in the room, opens them up, gets them talking, builds the rapport, and then we teach these amazing life-changing techniques. And the impact has been huge. The impact of Rise Up on people who have been on our course, and we've done it all over the country in many, many, many prisons. And just thinking
0: about your own journey, how you started, Mm -hmm. and how you've used your experience to help others, has Mm. been quite inspirational. And now for some dub poetry from Malachi Smith. You said you had three poems accepted by your school magazine when you were eight, and you still remember one of them. Would you like to recite it now?
2: Definitely. Good. The poem is titled The Pirate of Thunder. How I came up with that title, I don't know. There once lived a pirate of Sunder who had nothing to do. So he rode a little Honda to a port in Peru. He sailed from Peru to Asia with 50 men in his crew. They sailed and sailed and slumbered until near to land they drew. This pirate had no mercy. He even shot a flea, the wicked pirate of Sunder who rode to Peru. I wrote a poem when I was around eight or nine years old.
0: That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Malachi, thank you for being my guest on Behind the Yellow Tape. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Joanne. It was my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time as we go Behind the Yellow Tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com.
2: Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth. Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.